Talking Toro, episode 44. I mean, Rob, if we were strategic enough, we would have timed it so this was episode 46 because Torino and four other teams, who none of whom want to get eighth place, are all stuck on 46 points. The, the thing that makes me laugh on this as well is, I don't know if you've looked at the Serie A table, but depending on where you look at it, Torino are either 12th on the official list, which I'm not sure why, if it's goal difference, but every time we go to Torino site, we're eighth. So um, it goes through the optics of it are quite, we can talk about the value of this eighth place. There's a very, let's say, slim chance that eighth place is going to get you into Europe. You might be spending most of the summer like waiting the outcome of court cases, which then impacts your transfer campaign because you'll be, well, we're not sure we're in Europe or not, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think it would just, I think it, in terms of morale, it would be quite good to finish eighth, even without the, um, even without the European qualification. I think it gives you a bit of confidence going into the next season. You've kind of overcome teams. And I think apart from Fiorentina, which is a bit of a case in point, we should be stronger than at least three of those other teams. So it's the eighth place that nobody wants, seemingly. It all started. So we got, yeah, we got, we got a few things to, Go back over. It's probably going to be easier doing this in chronological order. So I'll let you start with the 2 0 win at the Marassi where Pietro Pellegri silenced the pipe smokers. Yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get on to uh, Pellegri's uh, celebration after he's. Uh... He cost me. I mean, I was I was also swearing at him alongside the Sump fans because it was a rare chance for me to get a three points in the prediction league after my one nil prediction. But um, yeah, just the the start of that game. I thought the first half was one of our best performances of the season, which is probably a similar theme going into the Monza game. But I thought we were really, really good. I thought Sump were really poor, but we easily could have been two or three goals up. Absolutely delighted for Bongiorno. I know I've been pretty critical of him. Uh, on this podcast, but I thought it was almost poetic. I think he said sort of so himself in the in the post match interview that it was almost destiny that he he was going to score. Uh, given that, that the following day he, he'd be reading the names up at Superga, I think his performances have been much better in recent weeks, and he's turning turning into the player that I think every every Torino fan really wants him to be. You could see. Again, we'll get onto Sverga as well, but you can see how much that moment meant to him as a as a genuine Torino fan, and he's somebody who I think could genuinely see out the rest of his career at Torino. I think he uh, not not to say that I don't think he's a good player; and he's definitely improving. But I don't. I think Torino is potentially his level, and he could go on and just be captain for the next ten years, and and that would be quite a. Quite cool You've changed your tune. You've well, changed your tune. I, I had, I did also mention on the, on the just before the Samp game that I had been betting on Bonjour to score all season because I think given his his height, given the amount of opportunities he gets uh, at, at corners, he usually wins the first header, but just cannot direct them on target. I always felt thought he's quite a good option to to score, and I felt he would score before the end of the season, and obviously, obviously he did thanks to thanks to Ivan Elic's excellent assist, really. Um, but yeah, I think my frustration with Bongiorno, and I think I've maybe not articulated it as well as I could have, is that he potentially will make mistakes which don't I don't seem to get called out as if it would another player. I think it, you've got to be fair, even though he's a Torino-born player, he's a Torino fan, we've got to sort of... The only way he will learn from these mistakes is, yeah, if he does make a mistake, he's got to be criticised in the same way that a, a Gigi would or an Ina would. Um, and yeah, I think... I think he. I think he's actually had a really good season, despite <laughs> despite a few a few of my criticisms. Just think that yeah, it, sometimes he can maybe get a little bit carried away. I, I much prefer him as the left side of centre back with uh, with shares in the middle, um, and then yeah, I think Rodriguez moving into the left wing back position has, has been a bit of a revelation in the second half of the season as well. Yeah, I mean the, the Samp game started off quite strangely with the Samp players. <laughs> Almost delaying kickoff by going over to to the ultras. Uh, it was almost like an end of game apology. Yeah. It was. It was. It was one of the strangest things I've ever seen in Italian football, and that's saying a lot. And that, and and well, we haven't even got to the Pellegrini incident, incident yet. Yeah, no, it was. It was. It was odd. It set a strange tone. Um, you know, it was almost it, like. 
they're apologizing for the performance beforehand and it, uh... yeah it almost reminded me of like you know when a game gets called off or something because or, or like even in when there were the covid games where uh Torino weren't allowed to leave Turin and then obviously Lazio turned up and like even though, but in those, in those days it was an empty stadium but it was almost like they like the game had been called off but they were just doing the photo opportunities for the fans and then they were just going to leave the pitch but obviously they they go over to the the curva they take the their photos their selfie they take their pre-match photo which is obviously done at the side of the pitch with the fans in the background and then I and then I thought are they like are they going on strike are they just walking off the pitch but no they just lined up in in their formation and they just started the game and it was such a strange way to be. I, I understand potentially the sentiment. I think there was issue. Obviously, the last game they'd lost five nil against Fiorentina. I think the, the ultras understandably weren't happy, but they just. It just seems like such a strange way to start a game, and I know in a similar situation with Southampton, obviously, where like your fans know that you're being relegated, and it's must be quite a strange atmosphere going into games, knowing that they're ultimately for nothing because the. There is no point. Even if they won, they would they wouldn't wouldn't gonna survive. But yeah, one of the stranger things I've seen up until maybe the the, the ninety fourth minute and, and Pellegrini's well, goal. Well, some fans did that thing that often happens in Italian football where they weren't their support was great. It was a bit self referential, but they weren't they weren't reacting to the game in any way. It was just we're gonna make loads of noise. Um, it was all songs about. Um, Kind of respecting respecting the Cordova and uh, and yeah, it was just I don't think it mattered too much what happened on the pitch. Samp gave a very weird flat performance. I thought after the what happened at the beginning, they might come out a bit aggressively. But there was oh, before we get onto the the moment which actually engaged the fans with the match, which is probably the main talking point. But it was a very it was a weird performance. They they kind of and Torino should have been three up at half time quite comfortably. And then what I really didn't like was Torino's kind of time in the game would come out in the second half. I don't know if like I don't know if the herbal tea or whatever we're drinking at half time. It's just but yeah, it's just we're lucky Sam couldn't really lay a glove on us and um Oh my god! My goodness me! Like watching Thomas Rincon play for another team is almost as painful as watching him play for Torino. I mean, how how is he still getting ninety minutes in a? In, I think I think I said that, that Harry Winks and Thomas Rincon must be the strangest centre midfield partnership in twenty twenty. Slowest, the yeah, slowest, potentially slowest. Um, I, I I remember reading once in um John Foot's excellent book on Italian football uh, that almost there is a culture that. And and sometimes you'll see this when teams go maybe three or four nil up that they they won't really try and embarrass the opposition. They'll sort of just declare almost at, at three or four nil because it's seen as almost bad sportsmanship to continue that. And Torino might be the first team who seemed to just declare at one nil because they until that ninth fourth minute they didn't really show any sort of. I don't know whether it was deliberate or whether they just were happy just to try and see out the one nil, but it, it did almost seem like they were. They were playing the rest of the second half as if they were already three 0 up, and they were just waiting for the end of the game. But obviously, it only took it would have only taken one half chance or a set piece or anything for for Samp to equalise, and it would have been another two points dropped. Yeah, no, the the kind of attitude was was pretty poor in the second half. Um, it like in the first half, I thought this this is absolute shoe in for the beat, the match where we're going to score three goals, and I think maybe if we'd gone two up in the first half, it would have happened, but. Yeah, you. If it was the two win, the two two nil wins against Samp have been amongst the most comfortable of the season, if not the most comfortable. You kind of went away from that game feeling, well, you didn't feel disappointed because of what happened in the ninety fourth minute. But I think if it had stayed at one nil, you would have actually maybe felt like we'd drawn the match almost on on that second half. But anyway, in the ninety fourth minute, um. I don't think it's been reflected on too much, but it was a very, and I think the director may have kind of missed it, but Voivoda hits a very quick free kick, Samp switch off, Flegri goes through, runs the goalkeeper, celebrates uh, for a good I few th- seconds I think before it's, uh, turning back. Yeah, and, uh, I think one thing's also probably important to mention as well. Flegri's first indication isn't to celebrate as well. He does stop. And then he's going back. And then I think he probably gets a little bit of abuse, remembers where he is and that he's a former general player, and then he cups his ears. 
Uh, yeah. It wasn't like a premeditated celebration in the same way. It, obviously, fans remember English football fans remember Emmanuel Adebayor running the length of the pitch to celebrate in front of Arsenal fans. It wasn't one of those. It was. I think he almost he does score. I don't think he that was almost in his mind. I think it's probably the relief to score, given the fact he's had a terrible season again through injury. He then hesitates and then sort of decides to celebrate. Um, yeah, I thought uh, I thought the whole overreaction. If anything, I think the people who reacted least were the Samp Ultras. I actually don't think they, again, correct me if I'm wrong, if there's any Sampdoria fan, fans listening, but I didn't really see any like absolute rage from the stands at what he did. I think ultimately that is part of football. I thought I think it was uh, Bruno Amione, who'd already been substituted, was the Samp player who seemed to have the biggest issue with it. Uh, there's a lot of lot of Samp fans, players, sorry, showing some Gwinter. Uh, yeah, know. and uh, I think the point I made was like maybe if they'd shown a little bit of that passion throughout the season, they they probably wouldn't be in the position they were in. Um, yeah, and then I found yeah the reaction of some Torino fans calling Pellegrini out for it. Juric himself also did that in in the post match press conference, and I just think it I, it was an understandable reaction, maybe. Maybe we don't. Maybe personally, as a sort of predominantly person who's grown up with English football, that is just part of football. If you score against a team that a rival team that from a team that you used to play for, of course you're going to celebrate. Um, was it unnecessary? Yes. Is he a young kid who's had terrible injury problems and scored his first goal of the season, or second goal of the season? Yes. I, I think he would, probably would have celebrated like that. I think he would have celebrated passionately if Eddie scored against anybody. The fact that he's a former Genoa player, Genoa fan, and he scored against Sampdoria, which has effectively relegated them. Not that it would have made any difference because they were already relegated. Um, I think, yeah, I think the reaction of it was was all just a bit strange. Yeah, there's a few there's a few things to to. Um, I saw Dayan uh, Stankovic afterwards. He was I, I wrote he dressed like a man who'd fallen asleep on the couch and had to run and answer the door. Um, he said it was just a bit like adding salt to the wounds. I and mean, I can see it to a certain extent that but uh the other context is Jenna were promoted this weekend, Samp going down. So it's like a it, you know, Genoa it, it, it's kind of yeah, it's, it's been a week week of celebration for Genoa, I guess. like you said, Sam if I was a Sam Baltra, I'd probably be quite pleased by it because it's kind of Yeah. Yeah, it just it it show it shows a bit of kind of passion that rivalry. Next time they play against Pellegrini, they want to get one over on him. Um, it just show, yeah, it just it's not, yeah. You, you don't want this kind of football to be neutral the whole time. And it's just yeah, if 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 I if you're a Sam fan, you're probably going to expect a a massive Genoa fan to go and to go and wind you up. And Sam fans would want the same if they're play if if it was yeah. a flip a flip reversal. So exactly and yeah. if I mean uh, it's probably difficult to to think of a say say Claudio Macchio left Juventus and then scored against Torino or somebody maybe a bigger Juventus fan, Juventus icon, then went on and played against Torino, you you would half expect him to celebrate because like that's just that's just how football works. I mean but, I always, I always dream of Matteo Damian scoring the winner against Juve and, and going crazy. I mean, he, he didn't do it in Torino shirt, but it, like, I, I just think at, at some stage you do have to understand. That. I know the context of them being relegated, and I know obviously Torino and Samp traditionally have got a bit of a rivalry. But again, speaking from almost like a neutral perspective, I think it's a shame that Samp have gone down. I think they would have been, I think they're pretty sure they were in our all-time Serie A table. I think the the derby with Genoa is one of the better derbies in Italian football because I think it is a level, usually a level playing field in terms of the ability of the teams, especially recently, that it can go either way. Um, so yeah, I think it's just a, a bit of a shame that almost that became the talking point. Um, then it, yeah, obviously if it'd been, I think it played, he'd scored. It was a convenient talking point for Sam Pan for Torino because the second half was poor and Sam didn't have to talk about their plight, so kind of suited everyone. I I just think it's uh, I I think Sam, some Sam fans would have been fair plays. He's, he's, he's a Genoa fan, and when our day comes, it will be even sweeter now. Um, 
And that's the, that's the way I see it. And that leads us on to Superga because there's a funny anecdote of Superga. There was a Gen- Genoa fan, a guy dressed like Genoa t-shirt who broke the kind of security line as the players were going into the Basilica and first gives Juric a massive hug, uh, which might have been related to Juric being ex-Genoa player and coach. But then he does the whole, he gives Pellegrini a big hug, obviously to thank him for his goal. And they're both doing that kind of whispering thing that, yeah, but there was a plague. We looked really embarrassed by it, actually. Um, and he and he got he, there was an open training session on the on the morning of Superga at the Philadelphia, and again that was probably showed maybe the different varying reactions to some Torino fans of it. I think I put a poll up, and it was pretty even about uh, whether he thought he was in the wrong or not. And he got a really good reception. Again, he looked a little bit embarrassed. I think he has almost been given a, a telling off from from Urich, well, privately and publicly. Well, he didn't come on on Sunday, which I found really weird and which we'll come on to. And I don't know if that was punishment or if he was carrying a knock, but either way, um, either way, but strange. Well, anyone on Superga, I don't think there's loads to say because we, we covered it last week. And, and yeah, if anyone's not listened to last week's pod, there's an excellent half an hour piece with, with Dominic Bliss on Superga. Um, just I wanted to pull a couple of things out. Uh, Cairo, there was a few uh, mild boos and protests against Cairo. I'm not a Cairo fan. I think he deserves criticism. He deserves vocal criticism at times. I don't think the 4th of May is particularly as a day to engage in in that personally. Um, And there is a little bit kind of, well, it's it's, it's a little bit selfie central. more selfie central than than a... I don't know. There's some aspects of it are just this kind of reality, but it looked like a really good day. Lots of fans up there, lots of ex-players up there. The reading of Bongiorno was was really nice. Um, Aina this year didn't have his earpods in going to the Basilica. I know he flipped his hat backwards, but ho- hopefully he took it off before he went into the church. But yeah, we did wonder if Juric was going to wear a tracksuit, but he didn't. So. I do find the combination of suits and trainers a bit a bit strange. Yeah, yeah I thought when I've, I, when I've been I, up to Pergi, it is, it is, um, the footing's maybe not the best, so I, I can maybe forgive it. Yeah, when I saw the first play of white trainers, I thought, ugh, but yeah, I hadn't realised it was uh, it was school uniform. Actually, it just brings me on to a point that last week's pod was uh, towards the end with Dominic, we, we debated the fly in the wall documentary of Torino. I just could you imagine Ivan Juric in a kind of? Uh, I, I just he, he could I couldn't imagine him having a cameraman in the dressing room, but no. I think it'd, it'd be box office. But I think I'll give him three weeks before, yeah, before, uh, at least before, be, before, <laughs> before he's punched somebody. But at least yeah. we will be able to find out what what he says in these uh, halftime team talks, though, to make his um, come out. And obviously, in the Monza game, it seemed to work, but obviously in some in the Samp game, we, yeah, we come out and, and we're sort of put in a, a pretty shameful performance but yeah if we, if we move on to the Monza game again it's very similar in terms of the first half we could have been uh, again I'll, I'll load up as well that I didn't get to watch the whole game I was at a um, reluctant street party so I watched the first half on and I think Peter said a couple of weeks ago he watched it here with a group of friends where he sort of tried to make it not obvious that he was watching I I wasn't I didn't mind who knew that I was watching so I had the iPad out on the street uh like uh, probably about an inch to my face because of the sun sh- shining so that I can actually see the see the uh, footage on the screen. Yeah, first half we were, I thought, really good again. Well, again, probably one of the better first half performances and yeah, unlucky not to, to take the lead. And then, yeah, we got a, a good goal in the sort of first minute of the second half. As soon as, ironically, as soon as I stopped watching, Sanabria scored. Um, yeah, didn't, didn't know where, if he wanted to take it on from there, Peter. Yeah, I, I was traveling. I had a work event this weekend, so I was traveling. I've, I've seen pretty much all of the second half and bits of the first half. Um, my takeaways again: Sanabria, a very good goal. Um, he is would well. We'll do our player of the season probably in a few weeks. At the end of the season, he's got to be a contender. Eleven goals. Uh, he's not played every game either. Just yeah, so he could end up with thirteen, fourteen goals, which would be a decent return. So yeah, you may ask a few questions. One is he has he really benefited from having the confidence of knowing he's the number nine every week? Um, and is he the is he still you know when we're looking at striking options for next season? Do we do we at least need an alternative of of similar quality? Um, I felt the game 
hinged on two things. I think Monza uh, made some very good substitutions or brought on more quality from the bench and they made a difference and I didn't understand Juric. I think Juric got his substitutes completely wrong and which which made me wonder why Pellegrini hadn't come on. But um, it also the timing of the substitutions, he made two massive blocks of substitutions within about, I felt like within three minutes, but um, but basically we ended up in a situation where we conceded a good equaliser. We were a bit kind of standoffish on them um, and found ourselves with Caramel and Sec up front, but both playing quite wide and no one through the middle. Um then uh, Baye and Adopo coming on together was all, was quite funny because it's it's like they've almost become a double act now ever since that that San Siro game. But yeah, they just come out from the blue like that. And it, um, was, it was probably Baye. He was. I know it was a great strike, so it's a bit harsh to say that Aby for the blame. But Baye probably reacts a little bit too slowly to the danger and allows him to have a, a free shot at goal, albeit from from outside the area. It's still sort of a, a low percentage opportunity. Yeah, but I think we just conceded the initiative as we do time and again. We didn't go looking for the second goal quite enough. Um, and then there was the referee has been, I think he's been suspended um, by the referees' associations for his performance. So there's a few incidents. Uh, Caramel, when he came on, did fall over a little bit. I thought it, I still think Caramel not just in the last few. Sorry, yeah, but, to interrupt, oh, but there was also opportunity. There was a, a situation in the first half with the disallowed goal, um, where yeah. it it was a handball by Sanabria in the build-up, and then uh, Voivoda took a shot and Moranchik sort of tapped it in. It took an eternity for this decision to get made. Um, ultimately, I do think it was probably the right decision, but it probably sums up that nobody really understands what the handball rule is because, yeah, it it seems to me that the new ruling of handball would be that the t-shirt line was okay, which obviously it hits Sanabria. He, he sort of makes two touches. He has uh, one on his sort of uh, chest area or shoulder area, and then one which comes down onto like the uh, sleeve of his t-shirt, uh, sleeve of his football shirt. Um, yeah. And again, I, I was in the impression that if it wasn't directly leading to a goal, that wouldn't be called a handball either. Um, so yeah, a bit of a strange one that, but ultimately, if if it was against us, I would I would have been screaming it was handball. Yeah, and I think well, coming on to those last ten minutes, uh, Caramel went this. I think has lost some of that momentum he had before his injury started to look like the Caramel of the autumn, uh, and maybe just to find his form again. But uh, there were two penalty calls: one where he uh, he was tripped in one of those ones that where the defender went over his foot. Um, it would have been a stupid foul because he wasn't really going anywhere. Um, but in I've seen them given time and again. Um, and the ref, I don't think they took a clear second look at it. And then the sec, the more contentious one was Richie straight after we uh, conceded. The through ball played. Uh, Richie's pulled back by the arm of Ravella. Um, ref doesn't give it. Uh, Richie spends the whole time, he's not looking at goal, which is the problem. He's looking at the back at the referee the whole time, partly because of the position of his body. Um, I don't think it was as scandalous as some people are making out, partly because Richie is, I think, is to an extent looking at it, but it probably was a penalty. It took them three minutes not to give to, to decide it wasn't a foul. And those three minutes, we never saw an injury time, which I found very peculiar. And then my final thing is, with Snabry off the pitch, I think Moranchuk and Vlasic off the pitch, were we robbed of the Superga victory with Vanya taking the winning penalty in the 90th minute? That just would have been like brilliant. Are, I think you are forgetting that Switzerland's uh, captain was also their penalty taker for a number of years. Well, I, I, I think Rodriguez takes that penalty all day long. I, I, I would have absolutely because, loved it if Vanya had hammered it home. But could you, like, I just... Like, <laughs> Uh, probably a niche uh, reference here for some uh, listeners, but I can always remember the uh, Anthony Knockart penalty for Leicester against Watford in the playoffs, where he misses a penalty in the playoffs semi-final, and then um, Watford go up the other end and Troy Deeney scores a, a dramatic winner, um, which takes them to, to the playoff final. Like, could you imagine? Depending on how long was left, again, I could just have it would be Pete Torino for um, Vanya to miss the penalty, keeper saves it. 
kicks it upfield and then there's no keeper and somebody scores from the halfway line. Yeah, I think, but I think in mitigating that, I think if you're taking, sending your keeper up to take a penalty, you're almost aware of being exposed to that. Yeah. And I think, I know there's a threat, but it's almost like... It's just like... Vanya, if you're going to miss this, put it over all wide. Yeah, well, Vanya's going to hammer it. I think it will hit the bar, it will go over anyway. Yeah. He's, he's not doing a Penenka, is he? And then, uh, <laughs> But then you just got your full-backs on the halfway line and you just... You, Which, it's, nine, it's a 93rd minute, you do a massive tactical foul, you don't give away a penalty, you give away a free kick you, in your half and happy days. Here's a question. Torino finish eighth? Yeah. Or Torino finish 13th? But Vanya scores a penalty before the end of the season. Which which deal do you take? Uh, I mean, yeah, no. Nah, Vanya's going to score a penalty in a win. It's I'm not having a four-one defeat. It's <laughs> um, the best, the best one's still the free kick that he took against the Car- Yeah, but just is it Kassens, I, Kassens, potentially. Was it Carpi or was it? Um, I'm not sure, but anyway, it was. It, it, it was. I, it was a, it, I mean, it was a few years ago where he wasn't even a starter. It was such a random thing. I mean, talking about. Talk about poor, sport, poor sportsmanship. Having your keeper come up and take a free kick in, in a Copper Italia game is probably poor sportsmanship. I can't. I can't. Would Mazzari have been coach? I think. Really, yeah, I think he must have been. Doesn't really feel like a Mazzari thing to do. And I'm sure. Yeah, I would, I, I'm pretty like, sure it was injury time. I think it was literally it, like it, it, there were seconds of the game left. Yeah, and I just think kind of the problem is even if Vanu might be our best penalty taker. There's that thing, especially Italian football, is like, you know, the lack of respect for the opposition keeper if we're letting our keeper take it. But, you know, it's not a... Fu- he's taken them in shootouts and he scored them. So I think it, it would be interesting to see where, where he is on that sort of hierarchy of penalty takers. But yeah, I think it's Sanabria. Then you'd think Vlasic took a few in the World Cup. So I think if Vlasic was on the pitch, he would always take one. Um and then, yeah, you, then, you, you you look at who's still on the pitch in that game. And Rodriguez, hundred percent. He might miss some I, in uh, Euros Euros games, but I think it, I think he could have coped with that uh, that pressure. If you, I would have chosen Vanya as my penalty taker in that situation. But anyway, we're heading rapidly into part two. Rob, it's I think it's probably time for a bit of Toropedia. It's your turn to test me out. So there is a bit of a theme. Uh, for this player, so you might be able to pick it up given our opponents at the weekend. Uh, so, they started their career at Atalanta before, um, where he made 46 appearances and scored two goals. Uh, then a move to Milan, 17 appearances, zero goals. Now, on loan spells at Parma, seven appearances, one goal. Torino, 17 appearances, 4 goals. Then alone to Sampdoria, 19 appearances, 0 goals. Messina, 67 appearances and 2 goals. Back to Atalanta, 32 appearances and 1 goal. Now, then he finally gets a move permanently to Celtic, 31 appearances, 3 goals. Back to Italy, to Bari, 82 appearances. And four goals. Then to Palermo, 46 appearances and two goals. Now to Sunday's uh, opponents, uh, Hellas Verona, 20 appearances and one goal. Back to Bari, 51 appearances and three goals. I know what you're thinking. Where's he going to end his career? He's gone back to Scotland. 41 appearances and two goals for Hamilton Academical. And then his final. Professional appearance is for St. Mirren, where he makes one appearance. Zero can, I be tr- can I be truthful with you? You already know it. I got this on uh, Milan, 17 appearances. Wow. wow. Um, so I won't, we'll reveal it after the break to give people time. Yeah, it's good. good theme for second part of the pod, this player as well. Yeah. Uh, because we're going to be talking about British, uh, British players at Torino. Uh, yeah, this player... Um, it's a short spell in a very bad season for Tor- for Torino, and I'm probably not giving much away. But um, yeah, I have fond memory. He scored two in a game at Atalanta away towards the end of that season. I think it was one of those ones where we threw it away later on. But yeah, he was actually um, he was a bit of a shining light in in a bad season. But yeah, I think I, oh well, fairly confident I've got it. But I, I think I may have made this too easy. Give it, and I will. 
there there is a player who I might be using for a future edition who um yeah I didn't wasn't even aware played for Torino uh, and it was just in the research for this that I found out found out that he did so that might be one for us to use for another day Right, James Ward Price. Um, all right, well, we'll be back after a short break, and we'll play in a British, a famous or infamous moment a British player had at Torino. E Dorigo adesso per il Torino. Il posto di Dorigo, Castigno della Croce. Parte il suo sinistro, la palla sul palo, la palla sul palo. Baglia Dorigo, palo pieno, avete visto che Dorigo aveva spiazzato anche Fagotto. Hello and welcome to part two of the Talking Toro podcast. Um, as you would have just heard, um, it was a sort of infamous moment in Torino's history before, before I became a fan, unfortunately, but uh, one of Torino's British imports, Tony Dorigo, uh, hitting the post with a penalty in the playoff final against Perugia. Uh, I will go on to uh, see Peter's mo- uh, memories of that of that day as we we go and talk about some of the the British players who played for Torino uh, over the years. But uh, I know you're all waiting for uh, <laughs> Peter's uh, answer for uh, Toropedia from the previous part. So uh, over to you, Peter. Four nil, Massimo Donati. Probably, probably a scoreline he was used to in his time at Celtic. But yeah, the correct. I um, yeah, I think I'm, I need to raise my game in both the. I mean, I'm not sure. I think we did say at one stage we weren't sure that this was even a uh, competitive game. Whether it was just something to to add in, but yeah, to try and if I'm if I'm winning, it becomes competitive. Yeah, I think I, I, I think I initially this idea was a chance to save some face after my predictions embarrassment but yeah no it looks like uh it's gonna be another humiliation but no I've, I've got a couple up my sleeve now so uh hopefully i need to i need to identify some players a little bit better um so yeah fingers crossed i can at least get get one on the score sheet before the end of the season well to be fair to you you've you've come up with a british based former torino player on the on the podcast where we're crowning coronation week I've just realised we've accidentally done this. A very strategic time, but we're going to crown the best. Oh, I don't I don't even know if we've decided the best favourite British player at, at Torino. It's not like there's been loads of them. Um, but that's the theme this week. We've done like our 11s before. I think we were just going to kind of tell some stories really about the five or six main British players who've played for Torino. So and maybe any, at the end. Any, any Ronaldo Vieira fans might want to switch off at this point because unfortunately I don't think he's going to get a mention other than that. Well, yeah, you say that. There was also a spate of um, British gentlemen who played for Torino, I think like at the turn of the century. Maybe they're on the Grand Tour. Maybe they were diplomats or or kind of, um, you know, gentrified gentlemen who were doing the Grand Tour with Byron and Shelley and pe- people and played a few football matches on their way down Italy. I don't know, but we've ignored them. And sadly, we've, I mean, the English-born player with most appearances for Torino is actually Ola Reiner, who England under 21 international so yeah there's there's we're not forgetting you Ola but I think we've based this on played internationally for England or Scotland we don't think we've had any Welsh or Northern Irish players um, apart from said gentleman maybe at the turn of the century so Rob we're going to discuss the life and times of Anthony Tony Markey Jerry Hitchens uh, Joe Baker and Dennis Law, who are always they're like a couple. The, the, <laughs> their time at Torino, that they're never separated, really. But we'll, we will separate them a little so, bit. So much yeah. so that I was also convinced that um, Joe Baker was Scottish, but he is actually he was born in England, moved to Scotland at a young age, and then and then went on to play for England. Well, I think Joe Baker was always very upset he played for England because it was um, reading. I think it was in the Jerry Hitchens book that Baker. Um, kind of played for England at a schoolboy level or something. And once you made your allegiance in those days, you couldn't switch back. But he he was essentially considered himself more Scottish than English. Um, and then losing my train of thought, we have Jerry Hitchens, I think I may have mentioned. We, and then there's a big gap. Then we had Tony DiRigo, uh, played for England, uh, obviously Australian born with an Italian surname. 
And then we had probably the most English of them all, uh, our good friend, Charles Joseph John Hart. So, ah, you choose where you want to start, Rob. We, there's no, no massive order we need to start in. Do but... we do we start chronologically? With that, that... Yeah, uh, I'm happy to start chronologically. I don't know how much you know about Tony Markey, but he's kind of the first. Um, from what I can tell, he is a double winner at, um, at Spurs, um, played most of his career there. Is I mean, he died a few years ago and there's a lot of tributes on Spurs websites and, and things like that. I think he was maybe a bit more of a a squad player, but um, but he had this mid-career break where, because he had an Italian surname, Juventus picked him up and it was a time where the foreigner's rule was quite strict. So they thought they might be able to Italianize him. So he became an Italian player or that the foreigner rules would extend to more players. But he was signed by Juventus, never played for them. Uh, had a year at Vicenza and then a year at not at Torino but at Talamone Torino, that horrible year where we had a sponsored name, and I think we had our first relegation to Serie B in the Tony Markey season. So uh, the only things I know about Tony Markey's time in Trinity lived next door to John Charles. Uh, he mentioned that in the interview with the Spurs website, and I think in that season, Rob, I found the worst run of results Torino ever had. So Marky scored four goals in the relegation season. Uh, the fact that we were so bad that season. He did play in a 3-2 derby win, one of six wins that season. But uh, I'm not sure he's going to make number one in the list. Uh, there might be Torino fans who are season ticket holders in the late 50s or disagree. But this, just imagine living as a Torino fan. I'm going to give you five results in the middle of that season. We lose 5-1 at Milan. A week later, 5-0 at home to Inter. We go to Spal and lose 3-0. We bounce back of a 6-0 home defeat to Fiorentina. And then we go and lose 4-0 at Padova. Uh, and and so, we were complaining uh, about 1-1 draws against Monza. Yeah, so Tony Markey, I don't know. Is there anything you, more you want to say about him? No, I think I, I think you mentioned him uh, during the week where whilst obviously we were debating this podcast. And yeah, that was the first I'd heard of him. I think it's yeah, interesting that he had the... Spell at, spell at Spurs and then yeah almost random loan spells to uh, to Italy and I think he, he went back to England and ended his career back back in England is that correct? At Spurs yeah he went back and actually won trophies when Spurs had their great team in the 60s he was part of it so clearly a good player um, and yeah we haven't apart from well two of these players um, we actually haven't seen any of them play so obviously some are the legend of law and, and, and Hitchens is a bit different to, to, to Marky for in terms of things to go on and even even on their time at time at Torino is a bit more documented. Uh so is it time to talk about the artist that is Dennis or Joe Baker? <laughs> I think we have to do them as a as a as a couple, a double act. Yeah. So so they arrived uh is it nineteen sixty one? Law was a prodigious young talent at Man City. I think Torino broke the British transfer record signing at 110,000. And Baker came from Hibs, um, another uh, prodigious forward talent, I would say. Um, Rob, I can just imagine this. I'll set the scene for you. It's week two of the season on the 3rd of September, 1961. Just imagine young Rob doing his uh, Torino blog or his Torino podcast. Torino play Vicenza. Uh, on, you know, BT Sport 2 we go 1-0 down and then we score 3 goals in 25 minutes uh, 1 from Law and 2 from Baker probably it might have been the high point of their, of their Torino career but could you st- uh, probably if there's a first half of Torino match I'd like to obviously a little grander Torino and maybe something from the Scudetto in the 70s or the epic comeback in the early 80s of the Juve but that must have been great to have been there to see that you know the two the two British players score three goals in twenty five minutes, um, and potentially could we say that's never going to happen again? Uh, that we're going to have well, we've we, we got we got we got an exclusive scoop for you at the end of this. But the yeah, I think you know, British I, signing. I think is obviously I think I've mentioned before, and we'll probably go into it with the players being a a Torino fan from from England. You would always identify to. English players and, and we've been relatively lucky that we've we've been able to sort of keep tabs on on players as well. And I think 
especially back in the in the sixties, I think it's important probably to the caveat for obviously Lauren Baker's time at the club is that Italian football was very different then, and probably w- there weren't the facilities involved that probably adjusted to foreign players as there would be now. Was it? Say again, I don't know who would be sort of the comparison player to to go over to the to, to Torino now, and might be something we t- we talk about later. But I don't think really they made any effort to sort of acknowledge that these were, these were two young players coming from very very young, yeah, yeah, well, very young players coming from for Scotland and, and and Manchester, and they probably weren't expect they weren't really uh, with 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 Marchi, I suppose with, with the Italian surname you. you you would imagine maybe a, a relative was telling probably he'd been over to Italy potentially and knew what to expect. Whereas I don't think Lauren Baker knew exactly what they were sort of letting themselves in for. And the fact that they still performed on the pitch probably is a testament as to what, what great players they were. Uh, like you say, with, with that game and turning it around, I think that would be for a, for an English based Torino fan, that would be the dream for us for, um, for us to watch a game and, and and the result be sort of dictated to by by our, our fellow countrymen. Yeah, I mean, there are two great players. Um, Law is the only Torino player, I think, to have won the Ballon d'Or. Obviously, it was two years after he left Torino. Baker went on to score 93 and 144 games for Arsenal. I mean, these were two of... two. Of the, I think Baker was a very underrated player, um, well, from, from what people say. And and Law just had an absolutely fantastic career and one of the great Scottish players. I think Alex Ferguson considers him the the greatest Scottish player. I think their time in Turin is defined by a few different bits from what I've read. They were very impressed when they came with the training structure in the preseason. Um, all reports said there were it was light years ahead for, um, of the way things were in England. Then you had the football on the pitch, which Law has always moaned was defensive and negative and not built scoring goals, which it may well have been, but two of Torino's first four matches were a 3-3 draw and a 4-2 win, which we've got nowhere near this season. So I don't know how Law would get on in the, in the Europe setup. Um, then they did start very well. Uh, Baker scored seven goals in 19. Law was voted the best foreign player in the league that year with 10 in 27. Uh, what I think, they really... and I think Baker, did Baker finish second in that vote as well? And Baker scored the winner in the Turin Derby as well, I should yeah. say, um, which also may influence um, our final decision, our final ranking on this. But there was a big incident. They they really didn't like the paparazzi. They weren't used to it. And uh, the, I think they found the paparazzi and just general interference with their private lives quite irritating. Again, these were two lads in their early 20s living in a foreign country, uh, in those days, you were a lot further from home than you are now. You're not going to jump on an easy jet flight and go back to, to Aberdeen or to Manchester or wherever for a weekend. So they were on their own. Um, and it's a similar story with, with Jimmy Greaves when he was at, at Milan as well. Um, but after a 3-1 derby defeat, um, must have been around February time, they, they let's just say they had a night drinking lots of alcohol. I think Baker was crashed his car driving back to their apartment from the centre of Turin. Law escaped, I think, relatively injury-free and resumed playing a few weeks later. Uh, but Baker never played for Torino again. I think he was in a coma. It was, yeah, pretty... Uh, a lot of concerns about, yeah, his his um, his well-being and, and, and even if he would survive the crash, which, again, put into context of Torino's history... Um, that kind of tr- tragic accident, yeah, just it, 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 yeah, it's, it's it, the tragedy, I guess, for Torino in a sense was these two that, that ended their Torino careers for for one reason or another, and then Law, the, well, the kind of myth or the, the, basically Torino, I think, tried to sell Law to Juventus at the end of the season, and the the, the kind of story goes that Torino fans basically drove him to the airport and out of the country, not to be seen again. Um, but I don't think we'll ever see a day that Torino buy a peak talent like Dennis Law again. Are you suggesting that somebody like, like Pierre Scherz isn't going to win the Ballon d'Or in two years' time? Uh, 
don't know. I can't see it. I can't see it. I think, yeah, I think it's... Whilst we've been trying not to make this who's the best player because I think it, that maybe be a little bit too easy. I think that would do automatically like Lauren Baker would be would be really high up in that sort of category is who's the best British player to play for Torino. Like you say, Law to go from playing for Torino and two years later being crowned the best player in Europe just shows I think unfortunately there was just maybe we could have the club at the time could have done more in terms of sort of protecting these young players and whether who knows if they if they'd enjoyed the lifestyle and stayed for Torino a little bit more Who's to say that we we wouldn't have won a, a Scudetto or, or something again? Would have qualified well, for the European Cup and and they could have won that Ballon d'Or playing for Torino. Well, if you look at that Torino team, that was it was the first shoot to recovery after Superg. We had, Bears, we had people like Berzot, Rosati, Carlo Cripa, the young Farini in that team. It was it did in the later sixties when we can't talk about Hitchens or the mid sixties did become a very competitive team. The shame in that sense. We were talking about that legacy credentials and that three of the players, Hart, Dorigo and Hitchens, we'll move on to, uh, were very attached to Torino and their time there. Law, I recently bought Law's autobiography because I've always had the impression, this may not be fair, but I've always had the impression that I've never really heard Law say that much nice about his time in Italy. Um, and he's got an autobiography of a section on Torino and a lot of lot of what we just said is covered. And like, the, the biggest compliment to his time apart from the training was he loved the color of the shirt is the main the main takeaway um and then law came back for the 100 year anniversary game when we i think we invited 100 legends basically uh for torino's 100th birthday in 2006 and that's one of the few times i've seen him really engage with anything uh, related to Torino, he used to be a summariser on Five Live in like the mid nineties. Whenever there would be a an Italian team playing in Europe or something, he would maybe talk about his time at Torino. But it, the, the conversation always seemed to be about Catanaccio and 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 things like that. Uh, again, it was quite a yeah, it was it was quite a colourful year he had in his formative years. Um, but I, 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 I just think. Yeah, I think the Law and Baker is, is a lot of myth. There's a lot of kind of um they came in like two film stars basically and yeah. Uh... I think it is I think it is a shame that obviously because again I when I first started supporting Torino, obviously I'd heard of Dennis Law, but I didn't realise that Law had played for Torino. It wasn't something which was sort of in my consciousness is that usually some a, a British player who's played abroad you would have some sort of knowledge of. Um, and yeah, even though it, it was just never really talked about, part of that is obviously that he went to Manchester United and became a superstar, and that was predominantly what people would ask him about. Again, I think in yeah, in terms of pure talent, I think he would he would probably be number one. No, I completely agree. Um, and then I guess then we go a few years forward. We sign Jerry Hitchens, who very different character. He'd been in Italy. He'd gone, I think from. Uh, if memory serves me correctly. I don't remember if it was Aston Villa to Inter. Yeah, uh, he had a few seasons at Inter where he'd done very well, but I think he had a um, I don't remember who the coach was. Was um, sketch my mind a very famous Inter coach of the early nineteen sixties. But he, yeah, I don't think that relationship was always ideal. He moved to Torino as a bit of a surprise, and I'd recently read the. Jerry Hitchens' biography written by his son. There's quite an extensive part in his time time in Torino. Hitchens was someone who embraced uh, Italian football. He embraced the culture. He really liked it. He stayed, then he went on to play for Atalanta and Cagliari. Uh, Hitchens, like Joe Hart, Shropshire lad. Um, not born technically in Shropshire, but there's actually a street in Shropshire, which I keep meaning to go to my bike, which has been... Uh, it's called Jerry Hitchens Way, I think. Um, so... Yeah, and he, and I think it's the Torino of the four teams he played for in Italy is one he made most appearances for, one he scored most goals, more or less like one in three. He got to two cup finals. We lost them both to Atalanta and Roma, so that little bit typical Toro. Um, I just think, yeah, uh, just probably quite a British-style centre-forward who came to Italy. Remember, there was a John Charles era as well, so they were he was often what, uh, British imports were compared to. 
But I think, yeah, uh, Hitchens a bit more understated time, but left a very good legacy, scored some important goals. Um, and unfortunately, uh, because Alf Ramsey didn't look at players who played outside of uh, England, didn't really get the international recognition. As soon as he went to Italy, basically, he was forgotten about in that sense. So I think that's impacted his legacy credentials in this in, in England. He's maybe forgotten about as one of the great goal scorers of the late 50s and 60s. But it would be hard to argue really against Hitchens being the best British import, personally. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's fair. I think in terms of the fact that he his on-pitch contributions were probably similar to, to Lauren Baker, but probably had more of a sort of attachment to Torino, really loved the culture and the and being there and and yeah um again I haven't read his his autobiography but yeah I would imagine that he sort of about his time at Torino being quite fondly and yeah I think that's that would be a fair assessment that in comparison as, as purely as players I think you you would look at Lauren Baker potentially being ahead but if you look at the whole package and the the sort of being a sort of almost like a talisman or a sort of somebody a symbol of of British players abroad then I think Hitchens probably was was the better way to do it and a very sad thing about Hitchens is he died young as well he died at 48 um so yeah it's just like yeah I guess there was a lot of um so yeah yeah also um I think as Italian football got popular in, in England in the early 90s he may have been someone who who could have had some great contributions about his time his time in Italy as well. So, and then we go from Hitchens. It's just a massive gap. Um, in the seventies, the, there were foreigner rule restrictions in Italy, so no one had British players for a while. Um, and then there was a quite a few in the eighties. Torino didn't really get involved with anyone. Uh, neither in the early nineties, uh, Torino probably started getting priced out of the British player market. And then in the summer of 97, we appoint Graham Souness for a very short and ill-fated spell as coach in the spring results. And in hindsight, it's strange that Souness only brought in one British player because when he went to Benfica and Galatasaray places, we, um, he took five or six. So uh, the kind of sporting director system in Italy must have been a bit stricter. But he brought in Tony DiRigo, who'd won the league with Leeds I think Dorigo must have been in his early 30s, um, came in as a left back. He was probably enticed by Italian roots, coming to play in Italian football, uh, spent a season in Serie B. Um, was a, the thing with that promotion, uh, that season was the soonest weeks really compromised the season. We didn't start well. Eddie Rea came in. I really liked the football he played that year. Torino got to the playoff final, and it's probably worth talking about. Dorigo missed. I always think of it as the last penalty in the shootout, but it wasn't. It was actually the third. Yeah, I always. The post. From, yeah. from reading about it after the fact, I always envisaged that it was the last I penalty, th- but yeah, it wasn't. So I saw the, the link earlier of the full pound shootout that, yeah, it isn't actually the. It, yeah. Obviously, it's a decisive penalty because it's the only one which is missed, but yeah, there was still time afterwards for, for the result to have changed. Yeah, I think sometimes it's been written that it was the last penalty as well. I think sometimes, I think history has been rewritten wrongly, but uh, Dorigo was very steady. He had a good season. It is Serie B. Um, and I guess a few things that leading up to that penalty miss is Perugia were our rivals for promotion. We went into the penultimate round ahead of him in the league. I think we had to avoid defeat probably to, to basically go up. Um, and, it was an absolutely horrendous match. Uh, there is a tackle early on from Marco Materazzi on Gigi Lentini where he, he could have broken both of his legs. Wasn't sent off. Um, Perugia shithoused Torino out of that match to win 2-1. We end up in a tied on points, so we go to a playoff final with them. In, uh, I think, Reggio Emilia. Um and Torino in the playoff final get down to 10 men after seven minutes and go a goal down as well and take it to penalties. I really didn't like some of the players in that Perugia team. They had, they had Matarazzi, had Angelo Pagotto in goal, who's ended up playing for Torino in the first, didn't, well, ended up being signed by Torino. But Pagotto had a few bans for 
for testing positive for cocaine later in his career. Quite an interesting character. Uh, but he was another wind-up merchant. Um, yeah, I just didn't really didn't like that Perugia team. And then when we beat them in the playoff final, seven, eight years later, it was it was pretty pretty sweet, even though we ended up getting demoted after going up, which is a long story. And I'm taking the spotlight away from, from Tony DiRigo. I guess the main thing I take about Tony DiRigo is he's become a bit of an international ambassador for Torino. He, for people who don't know, he's a co-commentator on Serie A has been for a long time and the only reason I suspect he's got that gig because he's played a year in Italy so Torino's been I guess been good for his broadcast career he always speaks very fondly of his time at Torino um he's I think it would be great to get him on the pod one day I think he's got some great stories of his time at Torino there's a Guardian article which came out might have been last year on on Sunes and and various various things and there was a, a few murky things that season as well which won't go, necessarily go into now, but yeah, Dorigo's kind of this might be a bit of British bias because we're we're a bit more exposed to him. Um, but yeah, he's he had I think he had a good time at Torino and and talks well of it. I don't think he obviously wasn't a Hitchens or Laura Baker, and he obviously wasn't playing for Torino at a particularly successful time either. Yeah, just to just to echo that about about Dorigo when I. You mentioned earlier how I used to, I started sort of writing a, a blog about Torino when we were in Serie B. It was really difficult to get. Obviously, the games weren't on BT Sport in those days, so um, yeah, it was very difficult to to sort of keep up to date with with Italian football in the second tier. So started this website, and one of the first things I did because Dorigo was on Twitter as I reached out to him and, and asked if he'd do an interview, and yeah, he was very kindly agreed. And and yeah, I'm not. 100% sure if that website is actually still operational, but I might try and do some uh, a rescue operation and, and make uh, make that interview uh, accessible for anybody who might want to read it. Um, but yeah, no, I again, I, we did I did almost um, ignore, ignore my uh, bit of a rant on the on the BT Sport commentator, which is probably won't mention it. Dorigo's under uh, Dorigo's section here because he's probably a colleague and probably has to has to work with uh, good old Patrick Dempsey, but. Paul Dempsey, yeah. isn't it? Paul, Patrick, Dem- Patrick, Paul Dempsey, Dempsey, Patrick Dempsey's an, an actor, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably probably shows my um, shows my sort of dislike of the man that I don't even know his name. But yeah, no, I just thought yeah, anybody can go back to Twitter and uh, I've recorded his his last monologue for that game. It's just a bizarre, bizarre thing to say at the end of a game between two teams who are level on points on the table. But um, yeah, going back to uh, to the ego, yeah, I think he, yeah, the, the caveat is it was a lower level level of football. But yeah, in terms of being an ambassador for Torino, I think he's he's been really, really good. And yeah, especially for people who've come to Torino at later age, such as myself. Obviously, I wasn't old enough to to watch him play whilst he was at Torino, or, or wasn't following the club then. But he, I, I always enjoy his sort of insight into a into a Torino game once uh, when when he's the co-commentator. And usually, it's usually the big games that that he will do on a, on a, on a Sunday evening. All right, we've we've spoken about the last guy quite a lot already in past pods, but you want a few thoughts on Joe Hart? The other, the other thing I would say, especially for people outside the UK, is Joe Hart, Joe Hart always speaks really well about his, glowingly about his time at, at, at Torino as well. Yeah, I think there's probably a little bit of a, a pattern in terms of, if you think some of the, if you think Baker and Law came to Torino at the start of their careers and went on to have really, really good careers and then potentially Dorigo and, and Hart came at the end of their careers where they potentially under decline. I think Hart is very grateful for when he was sort of booted out of Manchester City by, by Guardiola. There weren't many teams who, were t- who would touch him. He still had aspirations of, of playing for England and, and Torino were basically, it came out of nowhere. I think the story goes that we wanted Emiliano Viviano and it turned out that his agent knew that Joe Hart was available and said, well, what have you, have you thought about Joe Hart? There was still, it was still, never really thought that this deal was going to happen. I remember seeing it on a betting website on the Saturday. I think he signed the following Friday. And it was like, I, I was amazed to see Torino even on the list of clubs. So there must have been some sort of maybe insider knowledge that it was a potential. Um, but yeah, still one of the biggest transfers probably in my time of supporting Torino, just in terms of the actual, like what the hell moment of, Joe Hart, England number one, signing for Torino. His time on the at the pitch probably wasn't helped by some of the defenders he had in front of him. 
obviously this is the uh, time to mention Carlisle and, and Alan the Jetty, but yeah, I think he, like you say, he's, he has gone on to be a, a, a good ambassador for Torino. And yeah, it, for, for English-based Torino fans like like ourselves, he was a very good opportunity for people to talk about. Like that was nobody really comes up to me and asks how did Torino get on at the weekend, but when Hart was there, people would come up and ask, "Oh, how's Joe Hart getting on?" and, and things like that. So yeah, it's quite cool that people would actually sort of take the time to to sort of ask about how he was doing and and put, put, sort of put Torino in, in a bit of the, the mainstream football media. Yeah, there was there was a little bit of kind of. Uh, snottiness from the British press as well. It's like, oh, what's Joe Hart doing in, you know, a mid-table team in, in, in Serie A? And, and Hart really batted that back, which I liked. I think it was a, also saw a lot of interviews with British journalists that went out when he was there and they were, they were always a bit kind of condescending and he never was. And I think, I mean, he had a great time, but imagine what a time he would have had and, you know, maybe even under Mazzari or one of those better seasons where he was actually playing behind a decent defence. And, and, and I do obviously stuff. think things have worked out for him now and, and obviously I'm delighted for that and he's just won the title again at Celtic. But he, when he left Torino and, he, you know, went to, I think Burnley and West Ham, I do wonder if he, if Torino had the ability to assign him on a permanent deal, whether that would have been an option which would have appealed to him, knowing what he knows now that it would have, would have taken so long for his career to get back on track. But yeah, I think if we were doing a top five, he would he would definitely be in mine. All right. I think, well, we originally said we'd do a top five. I think going through this is probably a bit unfair because there's only six players. I think we'll just see if we agree. I think my favourite British player, based on everything I read and everything I know, is probably Jerry Hitchens. Um, are you going to go do, give the? I think Hitchens first is fair. I do think just the fact that Law then goes on to win the Ballon d'Or two years later means that he would probably be a fair second. Um, Law is definitely the one I would have most liked to have seen play. Having said that, and then contribution, I suppose. Do we do we just tie in Law and Baker as joint second? I think they I think they're just inescapable. They they arrived together, they crashed together, they left together. So yeah. Um, maybe second. And then and then I suppose that allows us to do a, a top five and, and and include all six players. So then I think Joe Hart third. Do we uh, go fourth? Do we go Marky fourth, fifth? Marky fifth? All right. I think that's oh, I think that's yeah. fair. It's a fair, it's a fairly non-serious poll, but it was yeah, good good to tell some stories of the British players. But Robert, before we talk about Verona. Let's just a bit of a fun thing. When do you think we'll see the next British player, and who who might it be? If it, who might it be if it's someone soon? Well, I think Any... I mentioned, I think I mentioned this on a um, previous podcast, but probably towards the end of last season, I thought Ethan Ampadu's performances at Venezia, um, I could see him fitting into Torino, maybe in that back three. He's gone to Spezia this season, who aren't doing as well. Um, I think he's playing in midfield. I, th- I do feel that that's probably part of his loan deal from Chelsea that they were always asking him there. I think if there was an opportunity to sign Ampadu on a permanent deal, Chelsea have got a lot of players, so I think he probably would be available. I think he would be good. I'm going to throw a wild card out there, though. Yeah. Connor Cody. Connor Cody. Imagine Connor, um, Cody, Connor Cody speaking Italian. Would be uh, absolutely fantastic. I'm aware that he's... Uh, not for, out of favour at Everton. Used to playing in the back three. A bit of leadership, which is something Torino have uh, missed. Um, again, I'm, I may just double check how old he is and make sure this isn't an absolutely ridiculous uh, suggestion. But again, I don't, I don't know whether he would be up for a little move to... Uh, he's only 30. Um the only thing with British players because of Brexit, I forget the rules on. In, I think he's probably got enough international appearances. Yeah, to, I mean, to qualify. I'm pretty sure he was in the World Cup squad, wasn't he? Which sort of makes yeah. his like he can't get in a put in a, in the Everton team at the moment. But yeah, he. he... Well, what, what? Why don't we do a little poll after this to see of 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 the people we propose who? Okay, who the fans are most like, and maybe maybe Vanyat will look at it. I've got a few names for you. I've got Ampadu on my list. I think Chelsea need to get rid of a lot of players. So I've gone Callum Hudson Odoi. If we were to get into Europe, I know the wages might be massive, but that, he's, a, that he's would... a Leverkusen, I think. I'm not sure how well he's been doing. Yeah, but he could be the Trey Quartista who we never intend to sign, who kind of does okay here and there. Uh, then I've got James McAtee, who's will go oh, back okay. to Man City from Sheffield United. Whether that would be a kind of loany thing, 
then I've looked at, okay, football's all about trends and copying what other people are doing. So Scottish under-21 defenders going to Serie A clubs. I've, I don't know much about this guy, but Lewis Nelson at Hearts it seems to fit that profile. And then last one, I've gone for a Southampton player. Che Adams, they can't get rid of him when he goes down. How well, I mean, you... I mean, I mean, I do have, I, I do have a feeling that a may, uh, Southampton, sorry, may try and do um, a strange thing where they just try and loan some of their players in the hope that we get promoted and then they can have them back when they come into the Premier League. So, so we haven't scored from a free kick for a while. James Will Prowse, yeah, I imagine his salary will be. Uh... Southampton we'll, we'll will pay towards yeah. that, don't worry. And I think this is an opportune moment to mention that Lianco scored his first goal for Southampton. Uh, in, and in true Southampton and Lianco fashion, it was absolutely meaningless as we lost 4-3. There you go. All right, we'll put some of those players in the poll, have some fun, and maybe Vagnati will see it. So maybe we'll put the four that we like the most. All right, uh, very quickly, I like the Connor Cody shout there. Uh, Verona, we don't have a huge amount of time. Uh, so Verona... On a bit of a revival, they're currently above the relegation zone. Rob thinks we've got a terrible record there, but we've actually only, only lost two of the last ten. Yeah, I meant in, uh, Ver- in Verona entirely as a city. All right. And then we've won five of the last ten. Uh, even Omar could already scored two winners there. So Even Joseph but, Martinez has scored there. Yeah, we won there last year. A similar stage of the season when Brecolo scored, but that was a kind of ninth versus tenth game. Um, all right, I'm just going to very quickly... Two concerns, Juric going back to his old club that he seems to really like, although unbeaten since uh, Juric left Verona against them. The other thing, Simone Verdi probably due a goal, but also if Verona stay up, they get we get we they'll uh, pay for him, pay out his contract. It's part of the obligation. So part, part of me is worried, just like, yeah, just let them stay up and they can have Verdi. Um, so... Torino, a big say in the relegation battle. We've also got to go to Spezia. I think to finish eighth, we'll need to beat Verona, Spezia, and one of Fiorentina and Inter. Maybe So maybe we're going to have to do three wins in a row. I have a feeling this is going to be 1-1. I think just looking at Verona's um, results as well, they'll probably be Irma eyeing this up as a game that they sort of need to win because they've got Empoli at home as well, which they probably look at as a, as a victory but then Atalanta and AC Milan away so I think they will think that this is a possibility of uh, three points I they are in good form and they've beaten they've all done to you know a little bit of a favour in terms of the games they've won uh, in the in the race for eighth so they've beaten Bologna and Sassuolo at home they were both 2-1 I feel like I'm talking myself into uh, Verona 2 Torino 1 it's rare you go for a three-no defeat, actually. And you're crap that's probably what, that's probably why I'm losing. You're crap at predicting. So <laughs> I actually, I'm, I've, I felt like I was quite good at one point, but I'm on a terrible run as well. So, it, it doesn't, it doesn't take much to beat me, Peter. Don't worry. No. So okay, it's a one-one for me. It's a two-one Verona win for you. Um, we've talked about some great characters who play for Torino, and yeah, another another fun pod. And we'll be back next week. We should have another guest. Um, Coming up, maybe not next week, but the week after. Um, so we'll talk about something completely different. And uh, Forza Toro. Forza Toro.